Over the next few weeks, we're going to do something different than what we normally do here, as Lauren already mentioned. You know, typically we go verse by verse through a text of Scripture. Uh, I've been here two and a half years now, just a little bit over that, and we've been studying Matthew going verse by verse, and we're just into chapter 13. And I really prefer to to do it that way. I prefer to follow a book. I prefer to trace the author's argument through that book. And my, my sermons really are just trying to take that text of Scripture and let God speak through His Word. But sometimes we need to kind of pull the car over, as they say. Sometimes we need to talk about a specific subject and focus on a particular theme, and we can't wait until that comes up in the book that we're preaching through. And so over the next month and a half, about approximately, we're going to focus on membership, church membership. You know, if we waited till we got to that in the book of Matthew, we might not even get there ever, actually, in the book of Matthew. And so it's kind of helpful every once in a while to just kind of focus on a particular subject and and see what it says. And And I've been waiting to do this. We've been kind of waiting for the right time. And and I was waiting really because I, I wanted to give you time to see what our church was. I, I wanted you to see what Grace Bible Fellowship was going to be. I wanted you to experience expository preaching, which is verse by verse kind of expositing what's in the word, exposing what's there and kind of learn to see what's happening in expository preaching. And I, I wanted you to experience what it means to have an elder ruled church, which is the form of church government that our church has. And so I wanted you to kind of just have an opportunity to see what we are and, and who we are as a church. And for myself, I wanted to see how you would respond to the word of God. And I, I think you've done very well in that way. I've seen you kind of responding and changing and growing through the preaching of God's word. And so I wanted you to get to, to know me and to see if, if you could serve Christ together with me and with our church. I think we all needed to kind of see what Grace Bible Fellowship would be so that we could decide if, if this is where we could grow together, if, if this is the place where we could learn to serve Christ together. And I think we've had enough time to do that now. I, th- I think there's been enough time that you can see who we are, you know who I am, you've seen my my failures and my foibles. You've seen maybe hopefully a couple of good things. Pete's saying no. Thanks for that, Pete. Um, but um, you've, I think you've had enough time to kind of see what expository preaching is, see where our church is going, see who we are. And for our part, for, for our family's part, we are committed to serving here at Grace Bible Fellowship. We are, we're here. I'm committed to shepherding you. I'm committed to shepherding this church. I'm committed to seeing us grow to be like Christ. I'm committed to reaching our community with the gospel and with sound doctrine. And I'm even looking forward to a day when this church is going to reach beyond our area, beyond Lacrete, to, to see missions kind of work done all over the world. You see, I think we have an amazing opportunity here as Grace Bible Fellowship to glorify God through this local church. And if we're going to glorify God as a local church, one of the things we need is we all need to be committed to this church. We need to be committed to the church and to one another. We need to use our gifts and our talents and our resources, our time, our, our energy, our money, and really all that we have and all of who we are, we need to use that to serve the Lord together. 
And that's really what church membership is all about. If you, if you think, what is church membership? Let me give you this definition right up front here. Church membership is belonging to an identifiable local body of believers in which the member and the church mutually agree to serve one another as they serve Christ. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about membership. Let me say that again. Church membership is belonging to an identifiable local body of believers in which the member and the church mutually agree to serve one another as they serve Christ. And so membership involves a form of an agreement, or we might say another word, a commitment. It involves a commitment. You see, Scripture calls the church to do certain things. We're called to gather together to read Scripture. That's why we do our Scripture reading and prayer every Sunday morning. We're called to sit under the preaching of God's Word, and I have verses for these, but I think you you can find them. We're called to be equipped for the work of the ministry, and we're to do the work of the ministry having been equipped. We're to serve one another with our spiritual gifts and to build one another up in our faith. We're to make disciples of all the nations, to proclaim the gospel, to reach sinners with the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. The church is called to baptize and participate together in the Lord's Supper. And we're also called to keep one another accountable, to to live lives that glorify God and to restore one another when we go astray. And these are all things that we're going to talk about in this series. And all of these things are done by local churches. Local churches are commanded to do these things. And so membership is when a Christian enters into a formal agreement with a local church to fulfill these divinely ordained purposes. And so we're going to talk about membership and we're going to establish, really for the first time, we're going to establish a formal church membership of people who are committed to serving this church together. And so it's a, it's really is for me anyways, it's an exciting time for our church. This is kind of like one of the final things that I've really wanted to set up as a local church, but we've just been waiting for the right time. But just because we're going to do this topical study doesn't mean that we're abandoning our most important conviction. And that is that the word of God needs to be our guide, right? The, the, even though we're, we're focusing on a particular topic, we still want to see that this is drawn from scripture because that's where the authority and the power is. It's in God's word, not in my words. And so we're going to aim to see what God says in his word. We're just going to draw it out from different places throughout scripture in this series. And so as we think about this, maybe the the first question is something like this. Is membership a biblical idea? Does the Bible speak about membership in a local church? And we're going to have to answer that question in this series. But first, I, I want to do something that's even more foundational today. Before we can talk about joining a church or committing to a church, before we can think about what it means to commit ourselves to a particular local church... We need to see what it is that we're committing ourselves to. We need to answer this question. What is the church? What is the church? And that, that's really such an important question. What is the church? See, I would say that a right understanding of the church is vital for a healthy Christian life. A right understanding of the church is vital for a fruitful Christian life or for an effective Christian life. 
But unfortunately, so many Christians have an improper grasp of what the church is and what its place is in our Christian lives. You know, even as I think about it, so many pastors don't understand, I would say, don't understand what the church is and what it's supposed to be. They don't understand the role of the church in the believer's lives. You know, maybe you've heard things like this before, kind of which I would say comes from a misunderstanding of of what the church is and how important it is in our lives. Things like, um, I'm done with the church, or I don't need the church to serve God. Maybe you've heard something like, I can grow without the church. I can be just fine. I don't need to go to a particular local church. And I would guess that most of us know or, or, or can think of professing believers who rarely or never attend church and who aren't members of a particular local church. You know, perhaps they've been hurt by a church. You know, you often hear something like that. I, I was hurt and I'll never go back. And I, I think as talking to, with most of you, I think you know people like that in your life. The, the, they were hurt in church and they're never going to go back to serve there. Or maybe people say the, the church doesn't meet my needs or uh, I find God elsewhere or it's not relevant to me or even something like the church has failed and we need to do something different or something better. The, the day of the church is done, you've, you've heard people say. And a common factor in all of these reasons for not going to a local church, and, and really I think there's two common factors. Number one, there's a misunderstanding of the church and its importance in our lives. And then number two, it's really a focus on self. You see, when you hear all those excuses, it's really all about me. It's what I think. It's what I want. What benefits me or what I like or don't like. And, and if it doesn't suit me, then I'm not going to join it. Another way to maybe frame this is to say something like many people view the church as something that's not essential. You know, they can take it or leave it. You know, if it's, if it suits me, I'll have a church. If not, you know, forget about it. It doesn't matter. Now, is that how we should think about the church? Or, or maybe even a better question is this. What does God think about the church? What does God think about the church? But before we can even answer that, we need to kind of go back and just think, what is the church? And, and as we answer that question, we're going to see what God thinks about the church, and we're going to see the importance of the local church. So what is the church? You know, sometimes we use the word, and, and I think it's fine, but we use the word to refer to the building where we gather. Although we might not call this the church, we might more likely say here, we, I'm going to the arena. But we you know we on Sunday mornings or, or certain, you know, um, actually, all this week, one of one of my kids was going, is today church? Is today church? Well, no, that's in like four more days, three more days, two more days. But we kind of talk about church like that. Is, is are, are, We go to church. Sometimes we talk about church as, as the day that we gather for worship. But technically, the church is not a building or a day. The church is the gathering of believers but even then, even that, not every gathering of believers is the church, right? Sometimes we gather, we go for lunch. That's not necessarily the church. The church is the gathering of believers to fulfill those specific divinely ordained purposes that I mentioned a few minutes ago. So when a, a group of believers goes out for lunch, that's fellowship, but it's not the church. And so what is the church? 
I'm going to give you six things. I, I think it is six things today in your outline. And the first one is that the church is the assembly of believers in the new covenant. The assembly of believers in the new covenant. The, the assembly of, of people who are saved and born again. And we can start by kind of looking at the word translated church. The Greek word translated church is ekklesia. And it's made from two other words. It's kind of a, a conjunction word. The first word is ek, means, which means just out. And kaleo is to call or to identify somebody by name. And so this word ek, um, ekklesia was, was used to, to summon an army. There was like a, a calling out of the army and each soldier was called out and, and brought together into a gathering. And so the word was used for a, an assembled group of soldiers. And then it came to be used for just an assembled group or gathering of people generally. And it's even used just kind of generally, this word ecclesia is used generally in the new Testament a couple of times. And to see that, let's just start by going to the book of Acts and go to Acts chapter 19. And we're going to be, like I said, we're going to be all over the word today. We're going to be flipping around. But Acts chapter 19, and let's just see this word, ecclesia, just used generally of an assembly. An assembly that is not the church. So Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go among, in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. So notice there's this crowd there. And then in verse, if you skip down to verse 32, now some of the, some, some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And that word there, translated assembly, that word is the same word that's often translated church. The gathering was in confusion. The assembly of people was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. And then again in verse 39, if you skip down there, but um, another guy is speaking now and he says, if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, and there's that word just kind of generally used again of, a, of an assembly. But this word took on a special significance in the New Testament when it began to be used for the gathering of the saints, for the gathering of believers. And it really was the perfect word to use since a Christian is somebody who's been called out, right? A Christian is somebody who's been called out of the world, called out of darkness and put into the kingdom of God or put into the kingdom of light. And so this, this word kind of speaking about called out and then, and gathered by name just kind of fit perfectly with the church. And the word was probably first used this way by our Lord in Matthew chapter 16. And if you want, let's just go there. Matthew 16 in verse 18. Jesus is speaking here and he says, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And there's that word there. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now we're going to talk about Peter and the rock when we get to Matthew chapter 16. But for now, just notice that the Lord is the one who's going to build an assembly of people. He's going to build his church and he calls it here, my church. 
And at the end of the book of Matthew, if we go to the end of Matthew, we see how Jesus is going to build his church. He's going to send his disciples to the nations with a mission that we call the Great Commission. And so in Matthew 28 and verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, and this is the resurrected Lord here, the Lord Jesus, and he's, he's speaking to his disciples. He's overcome death and he's proven that he is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And here's his great commission. He says in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so the risen Jesus, the Lord, is going to build an assembly of disciples who are learning to obey everything that he's commanded, and he's going to send those people out, and he's going to be with them, and he's going to build his church through them. It's one of the greatest promises in the New Testament that the Lord is going to be with us and build his church through us, this assembly of disciples. And that's exactly what we see happening throughout the book of Acts. The the Lord Jesus builds his church through the apostles and through the early Christians who went everywhere preaching the gospel. And so we see the Lord, and I I want you to see this. Just go to the book of Acts and just kind of see the emphasis of, of the Lord building his church, gathering these disciples and believers. And so if we go to Acts Chapter 2, we're going to do a quick scan through Acts here and just see the Lord adding to his church. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 40. And with many other words, he, and that's Peter here, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 added to the church. And then in verse 42, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so we see these disciples devoting themselves to this teaching and the fellowship and breaking the bread. They're they're committed to being together and they're growing together in their knowledge and in in their practical Christian living. And the Lord is adding to their number day by day people who are being saved. And then if you go to chapter 4, And verse 4, it says, Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. And then Acts 5 and verse 14, And more and more, and, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Chapter 6, verse 1, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, and then verse 7 of chapter 6, And the word of God continued to increase, And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Chapter 9 and verse 31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. 
In chapter 9, verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa, the, 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 talking in the context here, the healing of Dorcas or Tabitha, and that became known, and it says, many believed in the Lord. Acts 11, 21, and the, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Acts 14, verse 1, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Acts 14.21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And then in Acts 16 and verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. And again in Acts 17.12, many of them therefore believed and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Now I'm showing you all of these so that you can see this group of people and, and, and they're called in, in the context, they're called disciples. They're called believers. They're called the saved. They're obedient to the faith. They're those who turned to the Lord. They're those who repented. And, and throughout that context, they're called the church. They're called the church. And according to Ephesians chapter three, and I want you to turn over here and, and see, we're going to spend quite a bit of time in Ephesians this morning. According to Ephesians 3, this church is something that's new. It was something that wasn't known in previous generations. It's a new thing that, that was revealed through Paul and through the other apostles. And so it's something that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament time. So as we look at Ephesians 3, let's start in verse 6. It says there, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ, in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so the mystery that Paul is talking about here is this mystery of fellow heirs, members of the body, partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. And the mystery then is the church. And it's that, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are going to be heirs and partakers of God's promises. And they're going to be members, and that's going to be an important word for us in this study. They're going to be members of the same body. And so he's speaking about this mystery, which we call the church typically, and, and his stewardship of this mystery, his kind of work that God had given him to do in and for the church. And he says in verse 5, if you go back to verse 5, that it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So it was not revealed in other generations. And he says also in verse 9 that the plan of the church was hidden for ages in God. And so the church wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, although it was always something that God had in his mind that he would do in the future. And so the church began probably on the day of Pentecost, on that day when the Holy Spirit was poured out, and the disciples were on that day baptized into the body of Christ. And we're going to see that in uh, well, well, we'll go a few places, we'll see that, but we'll see that in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, a little bit later on. But the, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, and, and the, the believers were baptized into the body of Christ on that day, and that they became the church. And the church is then this new covenant people of God, these, these people who have been joined to Christ through salvation. And scripture speaks about these people in a number of metaphors or a number of word pictures. And we're going to look at a number of these here now. 
And I want to take you through these and show you not only what the church is, but also, again, why the church is important. And so number one was this, this, um, this gathering, this assembly of believers in the new covenant. Number two, the church is a gift from the Father to the Son. The church is a gift from the Father to the Son. And we see this one primarily in the book of John, the gospel of John. And, and to see that then, let's go to John chapter six. John chapter 6, we see in John this group of people who are given by the Father to the Son. And so in John 6 and verse 37, Jesus says this, he says, All that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me, this gift from the Father, they will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so there's this group of people here, and Jesus says that they're those whom the Father gives me. And these people are going to come to Jesus, and the context reveals there that they're going to come to him, that they're going to believe. They're going to come and believe. To come to him is to believe in him and to be saved. And notice that all of this group that the Father gives, they're going to come to Jesus. And in the context, some people are are refusing to come to Jesus. There's these people that won't come to Jesus, and Jesus is comforting himself by noting that all that the Father gives him will come. Now, we can't turn this around here. It does not say that all those who come are the ones that the Father gives. It's, it's actually all those that the Father gives, they will come. And so there's this group of those that the Father gives, and he gives these people to his Son, and all of them will eventually come. And he speaks to them again in verse 39. Look at it there. And he says, and, and this is the will of him who sent me, the will of the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And so all these people given by the Father to the Son will be raised up on the last day. Verse 40, if you look at that, they will believe and they will have eternal life and they're going to be raised up on the last day. And these people appear again in chapter 10 where Jesus calls them my sheep. These people that are given from the Father. And so go to chapter 10. Look at verse 25. Jesus answered them, it says, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, as we look at this, I can't help but mentioning this remarkable statement that Jesus makes. You do not believe because... Why do they not believe? Because... You are not my sheep. You see, if they were among his sheep, they would believe. Look at verse 27, the very next verse. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, there's that again, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so the reason that his sheep hear his voice and believe and follow him is because in verse 29, my father has given them to me. And so these people, again, are a gift from the father to the son. And then in John chapter 17, Jesus speaks about these people again and he prays for them. Go to John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of our Lord. 
Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. There's those people again. Those whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, verse 1 there has this kind of neat reciprocal aspect to it here. The Son asks the Father to glorify Him in the hour of trial. So Jesus wants the Father to glorify Him through this trial in order that the Son may glorify the Father. So glorify me that I may glorify you. And verse 2 ties this glorifying God to salvation. The Father has given these people to the Son, and now the Son is going to give these people eternal life. He's going to save these people. Another way to say this is in verse 3, the Father gave them to the Son and the Son is going to reveal the Father to them so that they come to know the Father and the Son because that's eternal life, this knowledge of God. Then if you look at verse 6, it says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. So Jesus revealed the Father to these people. Again, the people whom you gave me out of the world Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And then in verse 9, Jesus prays for them, and for them alone. Look at verse 9. I am praying for them, that is, those people whom the Father gave him. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So Jesus is going to be glorified through this people that he has given eternal life to whom the Father had previously given him before that. And so Jesus and the Father are going to be glorified through these people that the Father has given. Now there's there's more that we could see here, but, but we should really move on to the next one. See, these people become the object of our Lord's prayer because he wants his Father to be glorified through these people, and, and these people again are the church or those whom the Father has given. And they're really, and it's really, we should say what we are then, if you think about it, what we are is a love gift from the Father to the Son. Now, as we think about this love gift, we are not lovely in ourselves. We are sinners. We are entirely unlovely, but through this salvation that Jesus gives, we become lovely and we become a wonderful gift from the Father to the Son. And so through this salvation, we become number three, we become the bride of Christ. That's another way that scripture speaks of us. We've been given from the Father and what's been given is really this bride for his Son. And so the church is the bride of Christ. And to see that, I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. The Old Testament spoke about God as being like a husband. God was a husband to Israel. He was like a husband. But the picture goes even deeper in the New Testament when the church is the bride of Christ. And so Paul says in Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your husbands. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, Paul here says that in verse 32, that he's speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And the church's relationship to Christ is like that of a wife to a husband. You know, the the marriage relationship is a divinely ordained picture of Christ and his bride, the church. And this ought to give us pause if if we just kind of stop and apply this a little bit to ourselves. This ought to give us pause before we speak negatively about the church. You see, Christ chose the church as his bride. And he is one flesh with her. And he loves the church. Christ Jesus loves the church. And he gave himself up for her. Uh, um, he gave himself up for her. He's, he's working in her to make her beautiful, that he might sanctify her in verse 26. He's working in the church that he might present her to himself in all her glory, verse 27. The, the church is, is being sanctified, made holy, and one day the church is going to stand before Christ and on that day we're going to be completely blameless entirely separate from sin and fully devoted to Christ in love like a wife should be to her husband. But even now, Christ is our head. He is our leader. And even now, we joyfully submit to his leadership. In fact, we're already joined together with Christ in this union that mirrors the one flesh union of a husband and wife. And if you look again then at verse 30, it says, because we are members of of his body. And so he nourishes and cherishes us as himself because we are united to him as husband and wife. And that's really amazing when you think about it. When, when Christ loves us, he actually loves himself because we've been united to him. And so make sure you draw some encouragement from that as you think about that this morning, that, that, that Christ loves you if you're part of his body. He loves you as himself because you're united to him. Now we should note here before we leave Ephesians 5 that the language here is is the language of salvation. Verse 23 says Christ is the savior of the church which is his body. And the washing language in verse 26 speaks of salvation as well. And so the idea is of being presented to Christ. The, the this this idea that we're going to be presented to him, that we're going to appear before him in the new heavens and the new earth, that's also kind of a, a salvation picture. And we see this kind of coming to fruition in Revelation 19 and 20. I just want to read a few verses from Revelation 19. So go ahead and turn over there with, with me.
Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, is blessed, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then we see in Revelation chapter 20, we see this, this, this relationship of Christ and the church. We see the, the bride. We see the church enjoying Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the church is a beautiful bride, which is going to be presented to Christ when he returns. And we will be made beautiful, not because we're beautiful of ourselves, but because it is granted to us through our salvation to clothe ourselves with fine linen, bright and pure that the Lord gives us. We're going to be made beautiful and we're going to be made a wonderful gift to Christ through salvation. And so the church is the bride of Christ. Number four, the church is a people that are made alive with Christ and united to him. And to see that, I want you to go back to the book of Ephesians. The church is a a people made alive with Christ and united to him. And we're going to look at that in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 kind of looks back on what happened to the Ephesians when they got saved. And Paul says in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so before salvation, the Ephesians and really all people were dead. And they and we lived in trespasses and sins. We were in rebellion against God in a state of death, an unresponsive state of death. And this is how we all were before salvation. And because of who we were, we, we lived in bondage to three things, which sometimes are called the unholy trinity. We were conformed to the world in verse 2. We were controlled by the devil who's called the prince of the power of the air again in the the latter half of verse 2. And thirdly, we were captive to the desires of the flesh in verse 3. And so we lived a life dead in trespasses and sins and bondage to the world, the devil, and the flesh. And that path leads to hell. We were by nature children of wrath, but God delivered us and he delivered the Ephesians from that state. And we see that in verse four, where it says, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and here's the key verse of this section, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. And so because of his love for us and because he planned to marry us to Christ, God acted. And verse 5 says that he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us to spiritual life, causing us to repent and believe. And he joined us and united us to Jesus Christ, his son. And that 
whole being made alive together with Christ. That's what it means when it says to be saved by grace. So he made you alive by grace. You have been saved. So God makes us alive and he joins us to Christ. And verses 2 to 8 further explain the whole thing. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so we could ask here, what is the ultimate cause of salvation? What is the reason that God made us alive with Christ? And the ultimately, it's God's grace. It's his unearned, undeserved favor that he gives us when he makes us alive and joins us to Christ. And then verse 10 shows that God's work in saving us is, is like a new creation. He changes us from what we were. And he makes us new so that we walk in good works, which he prepared for us before the foundation of the world. He prepared these works for us beforehand. And he made us new for good works. And he made good works for us to do as new creations in Christ. And these are what we could call, like what we saw in Revelation 19, the righteous deeds of the saints. Look at verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ, made alive in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, often when we look at Ephesians 2, we just kind of stop there because it's just so much in that little passage. But Paul goes on and he shows in the next part of, of chapter 2 that, that this salvation joins us to Christ as part of his body. And that's the fifth thing that we want to see about the church. The church is the body of Christ. And we've already kind of seen this here and there, but look at Ephesians 2 and, and just to kind of start somewhere here, start in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you know, you who were once not saved, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, the Lord Jesus, is our peace, who made us both one. And he's speaking about Jews and Gentiles here. He made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances There's a lot in there, but we're just going to kind of leave that for now. So he made us both one, the second part of verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body. There's the one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so Jews and Gentiles have been created in Christ as this one new man And together as this one new man, we are one body and we're reconciled to God. And so we're, we're kind of seen here as this one group of people, this one body that's been made right with God through Jesus Christ. And this one body that Paul's talking about is the church. And just to see that, you need to go back to Ephesians 1 and verse 22. It says there, and he, and it's speaking about God there, he, God, put all things under his, and his there is Christ. So God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him, gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body. And so the church is the body of Christ, which kind of completes this marriage metaphor. We are one flesh with him. We are united together with him as one. And he is the head He is the husband. He is the leader. And we are the bride. We are the body. 
And we are saved then into membership in the body. When we are saved, we're united with Christ and we become part of his body. And then we are united to everyone else who is part of his body. And, and I said we would go to uh, 1 Corinthians. Let's do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Another really important verse, and we're going to come back to that in this study a few times here, I think. But 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and Paul's just speaking about the human body here, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of the one spirit. And so the the one Holy Spirit has baptized us, immersed us into one body. And it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek or if you're a Gentile or a slave or a free or whoever you were, man or woman, doesn't matter. You are united into this body of Christ if you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. That is, if you are a saved person, all of the Corinthians were baptized into this one body when they were saved. Now, there's one more thing about the church that I want to show you here. And so let's just kind of review again. We've touched on it a little bit as well already. But number one, the church is the assembly of believers in the new covenant. Number two, we're a gift from the father to the son. We are number three, the bride of Christ. Number four, we're a people who are made alive with Christ and united to him. We're saved people. Number five, we are the body of Christ. And then number six, the church is the vehicle through which God is glorified. The church is the vehicle through which God is glorified. And and this final one is really so important for us to grasp. And, And not just with our minds, but with our hearts. We need to really get this. You see, the church is the way that God has purposed to reveal his glory. I think it's obvious when you, if you think about it, that God designed salvation for his glory. In salvation, he turns haters of God into lovers of God. You know, we were once haters of God and lovers of self, and now we are lovers of God who deny ourselves in order to worship him and to live for his sake. And so now as saved people, we live for his sake and we live to give him glory and to honor him. And if you need some scriptural proof for that, let's just go back to the book of Ephesians and let's look at chapter 1. So Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to try to cover this kind of quickly, this section here. Verses 3 to 14 are one sentence in the original Greek, and it's it's one sentence that describes the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in salvation. And each person of the Trinity contributes to the work of salvation in their own particular way. In verse 4, the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us, verse 5, to adoption. Verse 6 says that he did this to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. And so there's the work of the Father in salvation. And he does it to the praise of his glorious grace. And then in the beloved there in verse 6 is really a reference to God the Son. And then in verse 7 we see about the the Son's work of in salvation. In him, in the Son, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 
Skip down to verse 11. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then notice verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And that's almost the exact same as what we had in verse 6. The the Father and the Son work in salvation to the praise of God's glory. And so salvation is designed to give glory to God the Father and to God the Son that that we ourselves would, would be to the praise of His glory, that our lives would glorify Him is the purpose of the Son's work in salvation. And we see the same thing about the work of the Spirit in verse 13 and 14. Look at it there. It says, In Him you also, when you were, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. And so there it is again, to the praise of His glory. Each person of the Trinity is working to glorify God in salvation. But don't forget that this salvation joins us to Christ in his body, the church. And when God works salvation, he does so through the work of believers. God has designed the body of Christ to kind of continue the mission, the great commission, so that we would reach people with the gospel, which results in God's glory being manifested in more and more people who are turned from haters of God into worshipers of God. And as we proclaim this message of the gospel, God is glorified through the message itself because it tells the world who God is and what he has done in the, according to the riches of his glory to save sinners. And so the church on earth is the people through whom God is going to be glorified by his great work of salvation. And that's why Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And and we just let's stop there. What is this power at work within us? It's the power of the resurrected Christ in us that we are made alive with Christ and God is able to do more than we think because of this salvation power that he's worked within us. And then he says in verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And so you see this, that that the glory of God is to come and be manifested in the church. And that's almost on par with in Christ in this text. And so it's really an amazing scripture there that God is going to be glorified through the church and, of course, through Christ because we are, again, connected together. Just a few verses earlier in chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose which he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so again, God's wisdom which, which is maybe another way just to say God's glory, the, the wisdom of God, the glory of God is going to be manifested through the church, according to verse 10. Even the, the rulers and authorities, the heavenly beings are, are kind of looking at the church and they're seeing the wisdom 
of God on display. And so God is glorified through the church. And one of the ways that God is glorified in the church, not only because we minister to one another and and bring salvation to the world, because we are the only people that have the message of salvation, but God is glorified in the church by our ministry to one another, which helps us to grow in our faith. It helps us to put off sin and it helps us to become more like Jesus Christ. And the more like Christ we are, obviously, the more that we glorify God. And so the New Testament assumes that every believer belongs to a local church. And Ephesians 4 talks about how each believer works together, how every part of the body contributes something which causes us to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And that's from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. And so the more like Christ we are as, as the, the church, as each person serves with their gifts and does their part in the body, that we, we grow to be more like Christ. And the more we're like Christ, the more that we glorify God together. And the more that we're like Christ, the more effective we are in our mission of making disciples of all nations. And so we tried to answer the question here this morning, what is the church? What is the church? And, uh, you know, as we've looked at these six things, I, I hope the answer has also helped us to answer that second question. Why is the church important? You see, as believers, we should not only love Christ and be devoted to Him, but we should also love His bride, the church, and be devoted to her. You see, we serve Christ by serving the church. We serve Christ by committing ourselves to His body to do our part to serve one another being part of the church. And the church are Christ and one, so that when we love the one, we simultaneously love the other. And so now we know what the church is, and and now we can talk about what it means to commit ourselves in membership in the church. And we're going to look at that next time. You see, if you are a believer, if you're here today and you've been saved, you are part of the body of Christ. You are a member of the universal church But you should go on to be a member, a committed servant of a particular local church. And we're going to talk about that more next week. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for the church. We thank you for our time that we could study the church. And we pray that, that you would help us to love Christ and love his church, love his bride, Father, and help us to be the bride of Christ in this place in a way that glorifies you. We pray that you would be glorified through our local church. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.